1 Timothy chapter 6 this morning. If you are a part of this church, you know that since I arrived, which is almost to the day 20 months ago, it's two weeks from being 20 months, and we started a journey through 1 Timothy. It was the first book I decided to preach in the fall, just in two short weeks. Next week, we're going to have a baby dedication next Sunday, doing a baby dedication for Kevin and Whitney as they want to dedicate little Eden to the Lord. We'll be partaking in the Lord's table together on the first Sunday of the month of September. And so that'll be that. But then starting September the 11th, we're going to walk our way through the Gospel of John. And I've titled that series, Conversations with Christ. More of the words of Jesus are recorded in the Gospel of John than any other place of the Bible. And really, you can almost lay out the Gospel in a series of conversations that Jesus has with disciples and Pharisees and believers and non-believers and Samaritan women and women caught in sin and men that are struggling and all these different types of things. So we're going to do that. But I also want to say as a, mis, uh, as a disclaimer that uh, we are about to deal with the subject that is probably the most taboo subject inside the church, which is money. And so everybody knows that even though our church is growing and even though we're talking about building projects and church planting and all these things, I did not coordinate this sermon to somehow then bolster our position to say, y'all need to give more. All right. That was, there's no agenda. The beauty of preaching through a book is you arrive at the passage and that's where I'm at. So this is the last sermon out of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 17 to 21. And basically, I've titled it, if you have again your bulletin, you'll see it in the back, the conclusion, and I've really titled it Gospel-Centered Generosity. Gospel-Centered Generosity. Cotton Mather was an old Puritan that was in New England in the late 1600s, early 1700s. He saw the prosperity of New England at the time, and yet the materialism that was overtaking his church and country and area that he knew it, and he thought it was money. And he coined this phrase, I think it's one of the most amazing statements, considering he said it in about 1710. Religion gave birth to prosperity, and her daughter devoured the mother. Now, let, let me say that again. Religion gave birth to prosperity, and the daughter devoured the mother. Byron Chapel, the great commentator and pastor, puts it like this. Authentic conversion to Christ so changes people's lives that bad habits fall away, and they become better workers and managers as they live out the Scriptures resulting in economic prosperity. And if you study history, human history, anywhere where Christianity has taken hold, you will see this as a result. But, he goes on to say, tragically, in many cases, the new prosperity and material wealth devour the same Christianity that gave them birth, especially in the second and third generations. Which, by the way, Calvary Baptist, we live in. There are people here that are third-generation Christians. And it's often amazing, if you read the book of Judges, how often you will see that pattern. Before you get to when everybody did that which was right in their own eyes, you will often read about God working, people crying out, massive revival, good things happening. And then by the time you get to the third generation, 
they have forgotten God. And they forgot how they got there. The Bible calls Christians to be generous. We're to be a generous people. In fact, a study of the New Testament will give you countless examples of men and women who were being met by Jesus and having been met by Jesus were changed and transformed. Immediately, they lived differently than before. Now think about some of these names if you know them. Zacchaeus, that wee little man that climbed up in a sycamore tree who was a tax collector, and Jesus comes and stops him and calls him down out of that tree and says, today salvation has visited your house. And he instantly has a complete lifestyle change. What about Matthew? Matthew the tax collector, who was known as that Benedict Arnold of Judaism, and yet Christ saves him. And the next phrase you read about Matthew is he's throwing a feast for all of his tax collector buddies, and he's now spending money in ways he's never spent it, and he's being generous because he can't wait for people to know Jesus. What about Chloe in Corinthians, that very wealthy woman who opened up her home and that archaeologists tell us she was so wealthy in the city of Corinth that her home, the colonnade of her home, could easily sit over 250 people. That's how big her home was. Then there are people like the Philippian jailer who after coming to Jesus and, and, and being on the verge of suicide is now opening his home to Paul and Silas and others. Then there's Barnabas whose name meant the son of consolation, the encourager, who sells everything he has and goes and lays it at the feet of the disciples. Each of these folks changed their lifestyle. They changed their habits, their spending habits, their priorities, their desires. They changed their definition of what mattered. They changed how they saw themselves. Even the four disciples that everybody knows, Peter, James, Andrew, and John, those two sets of brothers, they left the safety of full-time employment with their father, a family business, to follow Jesus, trading in their nets for the gospel, and still yet fishing as they become fishers of men. But the hilarious thing is, in all of this, as I was studying this and thinking about this, meditating on this, is that the world even gets this. Like, this is not just a church thing. The idea of generosity, the idea of life change, the world gets the most famous of movies that, believe it or not, in just about a hundred or so days, you're all going to start watching feverishly, and it's going to be all over the television channels, is what? A Christmas carol. And we find out and we'll relive the life of Ebenezer Scrooge, this wealthy man who ostracized everything and everybody from him all to penny pinch and hang on to his money who was then visited by three ghosts of past, present, and future and has a complete lifestyle change. The world even gets this. Even modern movies like The Wolf of Wall Street or the two-part series of Wall Street and Money Never Sleeps, which was all about money, and it will ultimately tell you for, and this is what always makes me laugh about Hollywood, is they spend a two-hour movie, and for a, 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 an hour and 15 minutes, they will tell you all about how wonderful money is, only to tell you that it's all worthless, and then they show you a guy or a gal saying, oh, that I could just have relationship. But that's the world. I mean, that's not even church. That's the world. And so the question is, why do we all struggle with money? And being generous. And that, my friends, is exactly what Paul, or exactly why Paul ends the way he does in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 
these verses, verses 17 to 21, by the way, is not like Paul went, okay, I finished the letter at verse eight, uh, 16. Oh, yes, I forgot one other thing. So P.S. You know how you do that in your letters or your emails? P.S. And then there's P.S.S. And then P.S.S.S. I've actually got one that had four of those. P.S., P.S.S., P.S.S.S., P.S.S. And I didn't know if they were trying to tell me something or that they had to pee. Um, but I just know that, that this is not what Paul is doing here. Really, Paul is finishing the way he started, all the way back from chapter 1, verse 1, but specifically in chapter 6, foot one, six foot verse 1, and he's really the ultimate summary or the last practical way for Timothy to lead a church into being exactly what we've been studying for 20 months, because here's what we've been studying. How do God's people live life? How do we in 2016, in a 21st century, post-modern world where Christianity is not on the top of the pyramid anymore. We're not on the top of the food chain anymore in Canada and the United States. How do, how do we function? Well, let me say this. Talk is cheap. Actions are expensive. But motive is priceless. And with God, motive is, what's, is what counts. After all, isn't it God who said in 1 Samuel to the prophet Samuel as he goes to anoint David, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart? Wasn't it Jesus who said, as a man thinks or a woman thinks in his or her heart, so is he or she? Which, by the way, one of my favorite things is when we say something we know we shouldn't and we go, sorry, I didn't mean to say that. When the truth is, we should be saying, sorry that I said what I meant. And will you forgive me? Because there's no such thing as, I didn't mean to say it. Because once it comes out, it was in there to come out. So Jesus says, as a man or woman thinks in his or her heart, so is he or she. Is it not Jesus who said, out of the mouth, out of the heart, the mouth speaks? What's in here is what will come out here. And yet, before I really unpack this passage, I want you to step back and also see the overriding principle of generosity. So let me read this passage, but I want to back up to verses 15 and 16 and then read to the end. So 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 15, where Paul says uh, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he, Christ, who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And then he continues. Now, Tim, out of that, as for the rich in this present age, charge them. That word charge is the same word he uses back in chapter 1. I think it's verse 3, he says, charge them not to be haughty, which just means if you write in your Bible, not to be proud, not to be arrogant, not to be stuck up, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Do I really need to prove that to you today? The uncertainty of riches. I was at the bank this past week talking to the bank manager and she was telling me that banks uh, in Canada are starting to put more and more restrictions on mortgages because they are baked that the debt to spending money ratio of Canadians is going to about to tip over on the bubble and that the collapse of the banking system in Canada could be worse than it was in the United States. The uncertainty of riches. But then he goes on further. 
And he says, don't be haughty. Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Now here's the juxtaposition. Here's the opposite. But on God. Why on God? Who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Then he says they are to do good. So that's clause one, verse 18. They are to do good. Secondly, be rich in good works. And then finally, to be generous and ready to share. And if you take note in your Bible, always take note of that word, word ready. That's actually a key word in this passage. And then verse 19, this is the result of doing verse 18. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Why? So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Oh, Timothy, as he sums it up, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Wouldn't it be neat if we got into the habit in our life and world of parting ways and saying, grace be with you. Grace be with you. When I was over in Israel, I learned that word shalom and how it means peace and how often people in everyday life, whenever they part ways or they greet each other, it's shalom. They, they want people to have a life and an understanding of peace. Well, as Christians, isn't it neat to say grace be with you because every one of us needs grace every moment of every day. So I want you to look at this now. I want to know if you saw it Paul has just exploded in verses 15 and 16 in worship. He just said, look at God. See how awesome God is, how great and mighty and loving and powerful he is. All right? So he says, if this is all true, then live life in the reality of that worship. So how do you do that then? (laughs) Now, you ready for another really warm and fuzzy word in the Christianity? Duty. Duty. That's, that's what I want you to see here, all right? Worship fuels your duty. Just like in a good marriage, love fuels sacrifice. Good parents, love fuels parenting. Worship will fuel your duty to God empowers your duty, gives motive to it, gives it joy, makes it eternal happy if, now there's a big if here, if you and I truly believe that this is who God is. If you really believe that he is this God sung about in verses 15 and 16, if God is who he is, is that he loves us that he has chosen us, that he has sent his son for us, who, who Jesus who lived and died for us and rose again for us and who according to Romans intercedes for us in Hebrews and who turned and sent his spirit to indwell us and seal us and adopt us. And if the father loves us like he loves the son, which we learned about last week, and if the son is our advocate and the spirit groans for us, and if God the father has promised to supply for us and the son promises never to leave us and the spirit promises to always keep us, I've just got one question for everybody here. Why would you not want to live for him? If that's reality, if this is truth, You see, Paul has just told us how to be godly. He just laid it out. And then he tells us how to fight for that godliness. And now he's given us the way to win the fight for contentment. Be gospel generous. You see this. 
worship and duty of generosity, money, stewardship, and the power of the gospel. You see, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That, that, that sounds like duty to me. That doesn't sound like a suggestion. That doesn't sound like Jesus saying, can I, can I offer you a piece of advice? No, no, no. Jesus seems to be saying, you shall worship the Lord your God. Notice the personal pronouns, your God, and serve him only. John MacArthur writes this, the highest form of worship is to do God's will. Isn't that Romans 12, 1 and 2? That's what it is. He's, but he also goes on to say this, while duty not springing from a worshipful heart is nothing but legalism. See, if duty is only to stay on God's good side, if duty is only to make sure bad things don't happen, if duty is only to make sure you got a leg up on everybody else, or now you think you can put God in your debt, trust me, you're never going to stick with it because that's exhausting. Just talk to anybody in a marriage who just wants to figure out how to love their spouse enough so their spouse will then give them what they want. Never works. But show me a couple where a man just loves his wife as Christ loves the church, where a woman loves and respects her husband as Christ does the father, and you will find a happy marriage. That's just reality. It's just reality. So trying to worship, though, without any sense of duty is no worship at all. So Paul is ending 1 Timothy by telling his protege how the church at Ephesus can actually fight false teachers have good unity, focus on the gospel, have good leadership, be a real community and stay focused on the eternal. And you're ready for this. It doesn't have to be complicated to be profound. He basically says, be generous, be generous. You see, generosity is so important because it is at the center of the gospel. How do you think about Jesus and the gospel and not picture generosity? How can you do it? John chapter 1 verse 16 says, for, when his full, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Proverbs 11.25 says, whoever brings blessing will be enriched and the one who waters will himself be watered. So Paul's reminding Timothy, the Ephesians and us that we've been loved generously so the proper response is to live generously. So let's break this down into four quick things. Number one, if you're taking notes, gospel generosity is not proud or self-reliant. Okay, gospel generosity is neither proud nor self-reliant. Look at verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, and can I put something aside? When I say, as for the rich in this present age, that's everybody in this room. Everyone. Now, I know there are levels of wealth represented in this room, but if we took the level of wealth collectively in this room, we are in the top 1% of the world's population when it comes to wealth. That's just the facts. So don't anybody think here, well, go, go, get Pastor Steve, talk to all the rich people here and really give them the gears. No, no, that's everybody. Every one of us is this. Look at what he says. As for the rich in this present age, now notice, charge them not to be haughty or proud, not to set their hope on, hopes on the uncertainty of riches. So you see words like rich, charge, proud, wrong, and priorities. 
you get two warnings, right? He says, don't be proud over what you have. Don't be proud over what you have. Or self-centeredness. Self-centered, as one commentator says, rich people are constantly faced with the temptation to put on airs of superiority. Riches and pride are frequently found together. And the wealthier an individual is, the greater the temptation. Do I really need to give you examples? Just look no further than politics. It is exceedingly difficult for to be wealthy and have a humble spirit. The temptation is to view others as mere servants since wealthy people tend to hire others to do everything for them. So Proverbs 18.23 describes what often transpires. The poor man utters supplications, but the rich man answers roughly. That's what happens, especially if you read uh, Proverbs chapter 30. And then Proverbs 28.11 says, The rich man is wise in his own eyes. And if you look no further than Luke chapter 15, where you have the Pharisee and the tax collector, I would really challenge you to read that passage and notice what the Pharisee prays. Because the Pharisee prays, he thanks God. Remember, he says, he stood and he looked up into heaven and he thanked God. He said, I thank you, Father, that I am not like this man. There was just this air of self-centeredness, this air of superiority. And he even masked it with religiosity. He tried to give God credit, but really what he was doing, thank you, God, you must be really pleased you got a guy like me playing for your team. And that is the guilt or the, the temptation of those that are rich. Again, Brian Chappell says, an air of distance develops between us and the poor. We do not really connect with those who struggle. Do you just give to the poor or do you seek to connect with them, to spend time with them? Or when you see someone who's poor or you see someone who has had a bad go or maybe they've ended up in financial ruin or whatever it is and because you're not, our natural inclination is there's a bit of compassion so we're going to help them but we already assume why they're like it and how we're going to help fix them versus just being thankful and humble that God has blessed us with the ability to bless others. A second danger is not only to be proud, but also to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches or self-confidence. So when you are wealthy in this world, you can either be self-reliant or you can be self-confident. Proverbs 30 helps us with that, right? Remember what the, the writer of Proverbs says? Lord, don't just give me food that is sufficient for me today. Don't make me so rich that I am arrogant and I don't think I need you. And please don't make me so poor that I'm embittered and I think that you don't care and now I'm just angry at everybody. This is the balance that we have to work on as Christians to base their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Proverbs eleven twenty eight says that he who trusts in his riches will fall. In Proverbs 23, 4 and 5, do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. So are you to work hard? Yes. Are you to be a good steward over what you? Yes, but you don't put your hope on your riches. Or what about this great example from the word of God? Jesus talks about a man in Luke 12. 
It says, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And I wanted to add this, this could be for guys. I have nowhere to store my cars and my tools. Or maybe a woman, I've got nowhere to put all my shoes. That was very stereotypical, wasn't it? And Jesus goes on and says, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And then I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. So take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And you will now, who will own what you have prepared? And then Jesus finishes up with this. So it is, so is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What is gospel generosity? It's not self-centeredness. It's not self-reliant. I was reading in my studies about one of the Onassis uh, children had, got, had this big uh, inheritance and she was rich beyond her wildest dreams. And I heard about some of the extravagant things she did. She was traveling on an island and she realized she was out of Diet Coke. So she sent her private jet back to the United States to bring back two cases of Diet Coke at a cost of $45,000 American. Then I found out that uh, she also liked a certain type of cashmere and she couldn't find it. And so she sent one of her servants off to get it in the jet somewhere over to the Middle East or something like that. And $60,000 later, she had a sweater. And yet she hated herself, struggled with bulimia and anorexia and died in her 30s, miserable and unhappy. And guys, if you think I'm blowing smoke... For pop culture's sake, if you really want to waste an hour of your life, watch Keeping Up with the Kardashians. And then honestly tell me at the end of it, if you really think those people are happy. At the risk of being crude, if you have to inject your rear end with liquid so you can feel like you're more attractive, are you really happy? And content and at peace. Now lower that to whatever is in our lives that we think we have to have to make us happy and content and at peace. And if the answer isn't God, then you've set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. But then, number two, the gospel generosity is focused on God and others. It's focused on God and others. Look at the end of verse 17 into verse 18 where Paul says, but on God. Why would you set your hope on God? He answers his own question. Who gives, sorry, um, on God, who richly provides us with everything. Now notice these two words, to enjoy. Okay, he provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So this is what we have. We are told to be a functioning, God-honoring church. We are to be focused on God, and from that focus, we will respond with being rich in good works and generous. Now, not only that, but we are to be ready to share. That word ready means poised, looking for the chance. It, it'll be part of the way we think. But generosity or being rich in good works also means not just your money. 
It also means serving, a reprioritizing of your life and schedule. It means thinking differently. No longer will you be thinking, I'll take from the church, sit in judgment of the church, and consume from the church. I'll drive up to the church order, drive through window, so to speak, make my order, and it had better come in a timely fashion, have the ability for me to upsize it, but don't engage me at all. That sounds like the gospel, doesn't it? I mean, that's really going to change the world. And to, to make things lighter, Dave, can we show that video real quick? Let me show you that video so I can drive this home for you. This is Jack. Jack is happy. Jack is happy because he's in his comfort zone. Go, Jack, go. Jack is a good driver. However, he has been stopped for DUI, driving underinflated. Jack loves to go to church. Go to church, Jack. Go! Jack used to enjoy visiting with friends over a good meal at church. However, he stopped going to meals at church because meeting new people is out of Jack's comfort zone. Jack used to volunteer in the children's ministry. However, he stopped that because children are outside of his comfort zone. Oh, look at them giggle. That's going to make Jack cry. Jack tried attending a small group one time. However, the leader said, Jack, why don't you share with us? And that, you guessed it, was outside of his comfort zone. Jack has many dreams, desires, and ambitions. He wants his life to count for something. However, that will never happen because life lived inside the comfort zone is life lived outside of God's will. So I want you to see that. It's not just your money. Gospel-centered generosity is not just your money. It's your time, it's your talent, it's your abilities. It's getting out of your comfort zone. Because who better examples getting out of his comfort zone for us than Jesus Christ? Once again, read Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 16 again. But I want you to notice an important fact on this. Paul doesn't just offer here an, uh, something. He doesn't offer you a prosperity gospel, nor does he decry having money. Because you'll notice that he says, God gives us all things to enjoy. Nor, Paul never says, give some money, and then God gives you the life you've always wanted. Nor does he say, give everything away and never spend, have or enjoy what God has given. What Paul does say is live a life with different goals and purposes. That's what Paul means in Philippians. Remember in Philippians chapter 3 when he talks about, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. What does he say? I have learned how to do without, but I have learned how to abound. So that's Paul saying, I have learned how to be blessed when God gives me things and to enjoy them, but I enjoy them through the giver, not because I'm going to cling to the stuff. And if you're a parent, you know what this is all about because you know that every Christmas when you give your children gifts 
and you've watched your children as they grow and mature and you long for that day when they leap from the fact of enjoying all of the gifts and not even giving a second thought as to where those gifts came from, just enjoying them. Their life becomes identified and valued in those gifts until one day they realize all of this was given to me by my parents. And you long for that day when even before they want to open them, they just want to sit on the couch with you and say, thank you. I love you, Mom. I love you, Dad. Thank you for caring. Thank you for sacrificing. Thank you for loving us enough. You all know this. This is what Paul's talking about. And listen, if you're here this morning, you go, listen, Pastor Steve, you're getting really personal. You'll know you're struggling this if you read this passage and you hear it read and preached and, and all your first thought is, I, I do enough. Listen, wrap it up. Let's get going. I do enough. Why does he preach about this? Well, you can't say that's right because, you know, that's your version, but others have their version. Or how much is enough or how much is too much? This makes me uncomfortable. And I find it hilarious that we hesitate to call out people by false teachers. We, we hesitate to name false teachers, and I was guilty of this a little bit last week, or we try to convince and connive the, the, the false teacher. We try and give them a pass, but then when you think about these false teachers, they, they preach these feel-good sermons, and they're still meant to be a part of you and, and make you part with your money, and they do that by buying their books or supporting their ministries, and once you actually start calling people to real worship and real duty and real stewardship, when you call them to simply see Jesus and the gospel for what and who he is, well, now you're stepping over the line. What? Paul says to focus on God. Paul calls us to do good, more than that, to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready. We are called to look to God. In James chapter 1, what does James say? Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now notice how he finishes. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And we're to be ready. It's not just, okay, all right, I get it. I'm supposed to do it. And if Pastor Steve comes to me and says, listen, man, listen, lady, you need to be generous. All right, what do you want me to be generous about? And, you know, since you asked, I'll figure it out. That's, no, no, be ready. It's, a, it's, it's an adjective. It means a suitable state for activity or situation, fully prepared, made suitable, available for immediate use, willing to do something in such a condition as to be likely to do something. And then he says, gospel generosity is eternal in verse 19. Doesn't the world say you can't take it with you? Isn't that what the world says? Can't take it with you. Doesn't the world say, well, it all goes back in the box? Because it really does. John Oberg has written a, a very good book on that. All the money in the world and you still get dressed the same way. I remember my father, my grandfather, when we were watching television on Saturday mornings and I would see different things. And that was back when this program called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous was on television. And I would marvel at this and I would watch it and I'd stare at it. And then all of a sudden my grandfather's big heavy hand would be on my shoulder as I was looking at this fella or that woman and he'd whisper in my ear, listen, Steve, that fella still pees in the same toilet you do. That's good Newfoundland around the bay advice. And he would remind me, listen, you don't get this stuff. But have you ever considered how much the Bible talks about money and stewardship and generosity and what matters most to God? 
Listen to these words from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. In chapter 8, Paul says, We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. By the way, some of the poorest churches in all of Asia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Did you notice the full package? It wasn't just that they wrote a check or opened up their wallet or did something. They gave of themselves first to the Lord, and then they couldn't wait to help others. The point is this, Paul says in chapter 9, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he or she has decided in, notice this, his or her heart. So it's not based on what the leaders stiff arm you or peer pressure guilt you or you want to look good to somebody. No, from your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all time, you may abound in every good work. Notice what that is saying and what it is not saying. It is not saying give everything away and don't enjoy God, nor is it saying give some stuff away and God will make you filthy rich. That is not gospel generosity. It's living within your means. It's seeing what's important. It's seeing, well, this is why Jesus says what he does in Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now here's the key verse. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A lot of people, when they quote it, you, you quote it and you flip it. You say, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. That's not what Jesus says. He goes, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what he's doing is he's giving you the litmus test. Look around you and figure out where your treasure is. Because where your treasure is, is where your heart is. So where's your treasure? Solomon talks about money and generosity and stewardship. But I'll tell you, especially young people, if you were like 30 or under, uh, no, heck it, if all of you could read Ecclesiastes at least once a week, all right? In chapter two, Solomon. Solomon, who was the richest guy and the wisest guy, this was a guy who tried it all. Money, power, fame, sexual pleasure, all of it. When he comes to the end of his life, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he says this, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold... All was vanity and a striving after wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. There's where it's at. You see, gospel-centered generosity knows not to be proud, not to be self-centered or self-reliant. 
Gospel-centered generosity knows where to put its hope and where to keep its things like that. Gospel generosity is eternal. It lives for something more than the temporal. And finally, in verses 20 and 21, the gospel is worth fighting for and is to be protected. That's what it's worth doing. Paul sums up everything with guard and avoid. Notice what he says. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you and then avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. But I want you to notice that word deposit. So let's make sure we get what that is. I was asked last night, we had the college and young people over to our house last night. I had a great time. We played this uh, game called Catchphrase where we saw how sinful everybody is, okay? Um, competition raged, sarcasm was prevalent, and everything that we're talking about in this sermon was non-existent during the game of catchphrase, all right? But I want you, I was asked last night as I was talking about pursuing some more of my studies, and I'm considering uh, enrolling in this university that's a part of Oxford, and so someone asked me if I'd have to write a thesis, and, and then somebody else asked me, Would you, will you have to write about something new? Like, will you have to come up with something new? And, and that's a, an interesting question because that's a lot of what we think about when it comes to the Bible or the gospel in 21st century is, well, the old stuff is the old stuff, but come up with something new. Tell me something I haven't heard before. Well, St. Leo answers this best when it comes to guard the deposit and avoid. St. Leo says, what is meant by deposit? That which is committed to thee, not that which is invented by thee. That which thou hast received, not that which thou hast devised. A thing not of wit, but of learning. Not of private assumption, but of public tradition. A thing brought to thee, not brought forth of thee. Wherein thou must not be an author, but a keeper. Not a leader, but a follower. Keep the deposit. You want to have value in the church as a Christian, get into God's word and know what's there to be known. Don't try and come up with new ways. This letter, 1 Timothy, has taught us to st what to stand for and to make important God's word, the gospel, and prayer and church structure. This letter has taught us how men and women should function in the church, being godly, focused on Christ and others, caring for those who are hurting, all the while seeing how much everyone who belongs to God is valuable and has a part and a role to play in his church. This letter has taught us about what happens in church wherever and whenever we gather. This letter has taught us about how elders should lead and what he should focus on personally and corporately. 1 Timothy exposes false teachers and explains how to identify them and deal with them. This letter praises God and sings about him and, and gives us a big view of God that will fuel our worship and praise. But most importantly, it is the motive for our obedience. You see, we have a duty to fulfill. We've got dangers to avoid. We've got a departing of the faith to be aware of. And at the risk of sounding redundant, how are we going to do all this? Well, surprise, surprise. Be in the word of God. Be in the word of God. Listen to Jesus. Truly, truly, I say unto you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He who does not come into judgment. He, who, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John the apostle in John chapter 20 
tells us why he writes this gospel. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So church, if you believe in the word of God and you trust in the word of God, you'll honor God's word. Psalm 119 and Job show us this. Job said, I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured his wor- the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. If you believe it, you'll honor it. If Then you'll love the word of God. Psalm 119, 97, oh, how I love your law. And if you love it and honor it, you'll obey it. Then you'll start proclaiming it. And then you'll protect and defend it. And finally, you'll study it. This is duty and love. And it will open up God's word to you and deepen your relationship about God. And so as we finish this sermon and this series... And as we think about gospel generosity and money, listen, here's what the world says. What is mine is mine and I will keep it. Or what is yours is mine and I will take it. Or the Christian says, what is mine is God's and I will share it when there is need. Is that thus? Is that this church? Those who invest their riches for the priorities of the kingdom have invested for dividends beyond any human imagination. You're investing your treasure for a firm foundation to the coming age. That's verse 19. So how will you and I and us live as a church this fall and look into 2017? Because I got to make it a little bit personal, right? For what we need to do here as a church, as Calvary Baptist, what the souls of men and women in this city, almost a quarter of a million men and women, where almost 98% of them don't know Jesus. Over 98% of them. How are we going to do this? Will our budget for 2016 be met and surpassed? Will our budget for 2017 show all aspects of Matthew 28, 18 to 20, which is to go into all the world and preach the gospel and baptize them and teach them, or Acts 1, 8, to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, or what about in Acts 2? Will this be true of us this year? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And as a result of that, all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day. And you might see, Pastor Steve, listen, listen, cool, cool your jets. All right, you're getting too excited in your new sneakers. I don't tithe, I don't believe in it, and you shouldn't preach on it. And even if I could, I wouldn't. That's the wrong question. It's the wrong thing for you to be thinking. It's who owns everything you have and how do you live life in light of eternity? I'm not here to tell you how to give. I'm not here to tell you percentages or numbers or tell you figures. I'm not here to probe all those things. But I will tell you, we got to get honest and uncomfortable and vulnerable if we're going to have gospel community and have gospel-centered generosity. Because if you won't give, because I actually think the problem in our churches today is not that many people won't give, as many people can't. Because we're so in debt and so wrapped up in our own lives. And then we have to have a safe place in church where it's safe to admit it. And to say, I'm struggling. 
I'm in debt up to my ears, or I've made bad investments, or I spent poorly, or I overspent. I, I only give safe as long as it never threatens me or jeopardizes my financial standing. And so many of us don't live generous lives because we simply can't afford to. So we've got to admit it, and we've got to confess it and repent of it and go to God for forgiveness and grace and mercy and then cry out for wisdom and resolve to make better decisions so that we don't have where religion or Christianity gave birth to prosperity and then prosperity eats the mother. But there's another reason, I think, in church that people aren't generous. And I've talked to so many people about this is because they hesitate to give because they really don't trust God and especially don't trust the community of the church. They don't like the pastor. They don't trust others who are handling the money. But again, this whole letter of 1 Timothy has been how a family, a church family should function. Remember what Paul says back in chapter 3? I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God. You see, giving isn't a tithing problem or even a can't afford it problem. It's a faith problem and a trust problem. We don't believe God at his word and we don't trust him to supply for us according to his good pleasure. So we have our standard of living in our hearts and our minds. and We've also got our standard of living that we think the pastor should live at. I read a book recently where a chairman of deacon said it's God's job to keep the pastor humble and it's our job to keep him poor. And I thought, how tragic is that? We won't give. We think that there's a standard that the church should live at, the missionary should live at, and the game of coveting or jealousy or comparative righteousness rages on. But if we took a real hold of the gospel, what would that look like? And we saw the difference between, say, Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. This afternoon, go read Acts chapter 5 versus Acts chapter 9. It's the difference between giving for God's glory and the sheer joy versus seeking praise or having an ulterior motive. So really, church, where is your treasure? Where is your treasure? I want to say, we never urge God's people to give because God needs the money. That's an oxymoron. We encourage people to give because God requires our obedience in all areas of our lives, and that includes financial matters. Our call to faithful stewardship is really a call to spiritual, as as a spiritual one and not a financial one. And when we challenge each other to be generous and to have a generous spirit within us, we know that God is using us as obedient followers of Christ. So here today, how do you see yourself? How do you see your job and your possessions and your money and your family and your right to enjoy life through the lens of the gospel or the false idea that it's all yours? Is this life, is your life and mine actually money, 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 money? Or can you honestly say you can have all this world? Just give me Jesus because how great is our God.